We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And welcome to show 296 on the feed for the train spotters, or maybe that's the episode spotters out there. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about in this episode, with the centrepiece being our dive into season 8 of classic Doctor Who, featuring your childhood favourite, Dave, the Pert. Yes, I will have a lot to say on that topic, and I'm really looking forward to chatting about Season 8 as the main part of this episode. Mm, But before then, we have the usual news and short topics to knock through for the month of October. Shall we rip into it, Dave? Uh, We should, and I believe you've got the first one, which is a... uh, It's one that I think I should get the popcorn out for. (laughs) Please do. I've got a lot to say, and I'm sure you'll have a bit to say too. (laughs) Dave, a story I feel many, many Doctor Who fans will know if they're out there on social media, Twitter especially, but some might be unaware of it, and maybe the listeners who have heard of it still want to hear our take, even if they know the story. So here it is, Steph Coburn, son of an unearthly child writer, Anthony Coburn. He's the bloke back in 2013 who tried to prevent the BBC from using the TARDIS unless they paid him, quotation marks, lawful recompense. And over the years has popped up on social media saying some pretty bonkers stuff about a range of topics. I mean, he totally flipped out when Shooty Gatwa was cast, calling it BBC filth and a corruption of his father's creation. He seems to think Anthony Coburn invented Doctor Who, Dave, which is a brave and interesting stance to take. Yes, look, I I don't know how much credence to give to uh, Coburn Jr. because he's clearly not well Mm. and he's clearly doesn't understand what he's talking about. He he does seem to genuinely think that his dad wrote An Unearthly Child or The Tribe of Gum, as he calls it, Mm. just sort of, you know, in his shed one day without any influence or anybody commissioning him. He just wrote An Unearthly Child and said, I've invented Doctor Who and then wrote The Masters of Luxor and they didn't make it and... He's been bitter ever since. I don't know how much of that's inherited from his dad and how much is just he's latched onto this, but uh, he's he's just nuts. Yeah, he doesn't know much about Doctor Who. I mean, one of his tweets was, oh, I found like an early version of the script and it doesn't have Time Lords in it. And I thought, well, duh, the Time Lords weren't invented for another six years, so of course they wouldn't be in that version of the script. Yeah, look, there's a lot of bitterness there. I think there is a lot of... um inherited bitterness there because i mean coburn senior was always allegedly quite angry that the masters of luxor wasn't made in favor of the daleks Mm. and i I think that's sort of um something his son has inherited but look this has all taken us to a very real place this this has gone from a guy shouting at clouds to well yeah 
Yeah, because while all of this to date has been strange and has been quite out there, you're right, sometimes disgusting and many other adjectives, it hasn't really affected fandom before. It's just been, to put it simply, a, a shouty weirdo in the corner of the internet that no one's taken much notice of until now, because hot on the heels of the BBC announcing it was going to have the entirety of Doctor Who drop on the iPlayer in the UK, Coburn seems to have had a win at last and an unearthly child, and by that I mean the first four episodes of Doctor Who ever, won't be on the iPlayer as Coburn and the BBC can't seem to come to terms over his recompense for them using it. This is huge news, Dave. It really surprised me that this actually happened and the BBC have acknowledged it happened. Yeah, look, I'm not an expert on... Um, UK copyright law, or indeed it's probably just English and Welsh copyright law that's applicable here, but Mm. uh, yes, there are some archaic rules there that still require um, creators to get some recompense when things are put on new media and new systems, and so uh, that's obviously what's fallen foul of here. We are in that extraordinary circumstance where the person who owns the copyright, in this case Coburn Jr., is getting all of nothing rather than a bit of something. Yeah, I mean, he was offered 20000 for the story, he reckons. I assume that's £20,000. But it seems he wanted to essentially blackmail the BBC because his counter was, oh, well, I'll take the money, but you've got to make this script that my dad wrote back in the 60s and that no one ever wanted to make. And he, he was going to write a novel about it. I'm not sure the novel ever got finished. But you guys make this script. So there, there's a bit of blackmail going on. And of course, the BBC said, well, of course, we're not going to make that. And so Coburn Jr. has gone a bit crazy. He, he blames the BBC for his dad's heart attack in 1977. It's it's crazy stuff, Dave. I mean, he he's, if I can be charitable, he seems to want to honour his dad and maybe make some cash on the side, but he's just going about it the wrong way, to my mind. Yeah, look, there is lots of sort of crazy man shouting at cloud stuff going on. It's it's a great shame because it has really overshadowed the announcement that 157 of 158 stories, or at least those that exist, are now going to be on iPlay, which means I assume if you're in the UK and you pay your license fee, then you get to watch them for free, which is a you yeah. know, really wonderful thing. But it has been really overshadowed here. And and I think it's been exacerbated by um, Ian Levine, um, you know, mm. big, big, big name fan who is not unknown for his uh, uh, lack of filter, shall we say, when communicating, particularly on social media, getting into a bit of a, a fight with Coburn and sort of blowing things all up. I did get a sense based on a few exchanges that have happened in the last few days that People have been whispering into Ian Levine's ear and just saying, mate, the lawyers are talking. You and everybody else just needs to back off this guy, stop picking fights, stop lecturing him about what a bad person he is and how horrible this decision is and all that, all that sort of thing. Like, you know, all justifiable arguments, but but stop antagonizing this guy and let the lawyers do what lawyers do and maybe we'll get a result. But we're not going to if every fan with a Twitter account is sending abuse to this guy. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's happening. That's our take. It's it's interesting, right on top of the 60th. And of course, it has to be the first story, Dave. I mean, if it was like the, the eighth story in Doctor Who, maybe it wouldn't be as big a deal. It'd still be a big deal, but not as big a deal. Yeah, but can I just say, is the £20,000 they offered Coburn, assuming that figure is correct, is that an extra amount that they have had to deal with him? Or is every writer for every story getting 20,000 pounds. 
I wouldn't think so, because surely the BBC owns the the copyright or whatever it is to the to the majority of the stories. There, there just seems to be some sort of strange agreement that's happened with this. And maybe there are a few others like that. I mean, there is that agreement with the, the Terry Nation estate and, and Daleks, which doesn't happen with a lot of other monsters in the series, you know? So it might just be one of these anomalies rather than something that happens for everyone. That would be my take. Yes, you know? I'll be very curious to know. And if anybody out there does know more about this, I'll be very interested to hear because you do often hear about actors who turned up in a show in the 60s or the 70s saying, oh, somebody obviously bought the repeat rights to the episode I was in and they got eight pounds or something, you know. Yeah. You always hear that sort of story going. But 20000 does seem an extraordinary amount. So whether they he has got some sort of co-ownership of parts of the TARDIS or parts of characters, I don't know. Yeah, a mystery. It is a mystery. But look, good luck to everyone in the UK who's getting all the other stories on iPlayer. And I hope you get this one as well. Yeah, it's fantastic news. Now, from the very start of Doctor Who to the absolute latest Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and and I mean really latest, like like in the future, because yeah. before Series 14 has even aired, before the specials before Series 14 <laughs> have even aired, they have now started filming Series 15. RTD has said that it has started filming. He has said that there will be nine episodes in Series 15. Now, I don't know if that's eight and a special or nine episodes and maybe there'll be a special later but he's working on nine most are written yeah this is how you do it folks this this is how back in the day we had doctor who on the dot every year you've got to get ahead of the game and just keep making the thing something that's become not so much known in the last five years it was like oh we'll make it when we can sort of thing no this is how you make doctor who i'm very excited by this and it made me think that if they are getting so ahead of the game that uh news story we had a few months ago where shooty gatwa said oh after season two i'm going back to the theater and i said well does that mean he's leaving doctor who maybe there'll be a big enough gap because they've filmed enough in advance that he can have that break in the theater and then come back and film a third season yeah, absolutely. It could well be that they're banking some episodes to give Shooty 18 months off or something so he can go and do, a, you know, a big high-budget movie, you know, yeah. get some money in his bank account and then go and do a nice play or something like that. Barbie Part 2. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> but yes, look, I think that makes a lot of sense. Look, obviously it is a really good thing that there is this energy to Doctor Who and there is going to be this pace and certainly at least it seems for the next little while we're never going to be that far from an episode of Doctor Who the mm. the one disadvantage and look it is a small one but I think it's worth just putting out there is that if there is any feedback or any particular reaction to series 14 so shoot his first series there won't be any way to factor that in and we've talked about on the show how Chris Chibnall's first season lacked a lot of old monsters and big explosions and I think that feedback was heard because in his second Chibnall series we got nothing but old recurring monsters and big explosions so mm-hmm. and, and, and Moffat was very good you know you could see criticisms of, of Moffat addressed in subsequent seasons there, there was a certain amount of feedback going on there or even the Tasman thing in the Chibnall era I mean he I don't think he was thinking of Tasman being a thing and then people started talking about it and he shoehorned it into that third series and it, it didn't quite work but it was an example of feedback yeah absolutely so look whatever happens with series 14 series 15 will be in the can by the time that feedback is mm. heard mm. so 
look, if it's awesome, that's fantastic. If if it could have done with a few tweaks, maybe that'll be really obvious in Series 15. But look, look, that's a bit of a, a sad old bloke in his 40s who needs to fill time on a podcast and <laughs> thinks about these things too hard. It's obviously not nearly as big as the fact that Doctor Who is coming in you know, leaps and bounds. Indeed. And on that note, we've got some breaking news, Dave, because when we started making the show notes for this episode just a few days back, there were no confirmed release dates for the 60th anniversary specials. There were actually two schools of thought in play. One, that they'd all air in November, probably on Saturdays and finish around the 23rd. So, you know, probably finishing on the 25th of November, uh, which is a Saturday. And another school of thought, which said they'll start on the 25th of November and actually tip into December and end closer to what will be the Christmas special. And that's actually going to be the case. The Star Beast, it's been revealed, will debut on November 25, while Blue Yonder is December 2nd, and The Giggle is coming on December 9. RTD has also said that November 1, 17, and 23, I feel like I'm doing the lotto, Dave, will be (laughs) reportedly significant dates. And they are a Wednesday, a Friday, and a Thursday, respectively. So we have dates for the specials, and we have some other anniversary month stuff that's happening. Some of it as soon as the 1st of November, Dave. The stage is set. Yes, I I don't really have any deep analysis or comment on this. We we have dates. It's really great. We've got dates. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was it was always going to be one or the two options you said, and it's it's great that we've got that locked down. Yeah, yeah, and I'm looking forward to what these other things are on these other three dates. You know, little documentaries, perhaps, or who knows what they've cooked up for the sixtieth. Well, we know one of them. We do. Because that's our fourth news story, and that, that is that... I could have done that segue better, couldn't I? <laughs> well, not as funny, though, so we'll, we'll okay. go with it. Let's go with it. Yes, David Tennant will front a BBC4 documentary delving into classic Doctor Who ahead of the sci-fi's 60th anniversary. This hour-long program is set to air on Wednesday, the 1st of November, Back when I was a young fan, we got a talking anorak doing a clip show of Doctor Who. People <laughs> people older than us got a weird artsy program where psychologists talked about Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, but, but no, we are getting a proper 60th anniversary doco with David Tennant. Yeah, and, and I'm really looking forward to that. I think there's going to be some interesting uh, footage maybe pulled out. And, and stuck in there. It's a different vibe, the 60th to the 50th, Dave. And I'm okay with that. This doesn't feel like the 50th at all. But I think we're still going to get some good stuff. I think the 50th was right at the imperial height of Doctor Who, the new series. And there was a lot going on. There were missing episodes found. There were books coming out. There, were, there was a steady drip feed of stuff across the year, culminating in a big special. Mm. This this time, we are actually at the start of a relaunch of the show. So I think excitement about RTD coming back, shooting as the Doctor, getting a new series, that's really overshadowed a bit the 60th anniversary. Mm. But, but again, you know, I'm not one of these people who says, oh my God, a television program 60, the whole year must be devoted to it. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm very relaxed having a few specials, a couple of cool things come out. And and just enjoying the month. I think it's going to be really nice. And, and I think when we get there, it will feel very special. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
Now, moving on to short topics, normally because I'm leading on this episode, Dave, I would take the lead, but I think you've got the better story. I think you've got the better short topic this month. So I'm going to throw it over to you to talk about what you've done just recently. Well, only a few days ago, last Sunday, in fact, I got to meet Katie Manning with a whole lot of other Doctor Who fans at the Signs of Audio event in Melbourne. Mm. We'd been talking about this for a number of months, giving it a bit of promotion here on the podcast, and you finally got to go. Look, finally got to go, and it was a really enjoyable day. Uh, there was a really good crowd there, like proper, proper full house crowd there, and a really good mixture of fans as well. Now, there there were, to put, to put it in context for you, of the 18 presidents of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria, which is the local Doctor Who club in, in Melbourne, mm. seven of the 18 were in the room that day. Which wow. Which takes us back to the early 1980s. So there are a lot of old fans. There are a lot of people who drifted away from fandom, but they still like the show and they've, they've got in touch or people have got friends in fandom and they've come along. So lots of people seeing lots of people they hadn't seen for a long time. I saw a lot of people I hadn't seen for a long time, but there are also a lot of very new faces. And when Phil, who was hosting it, said, who hasn't seen Candy Manning before, I reckon half the room put their hand up. Yeah, I was going to ask, is it a bit uncommon for Katie Manning to be in Victoria? Because obviously when she comes to Australia, basically every year, she hangs around Sydney because that's where she used to live. That's where the family is, all of that sort of stuff. It's very natural for Katie Manning to be in Sydney. Is it rarer for her to be in Victoria? Yeah, look, it, it absolutely is. It's, it's much rarer for her to be in Victoria. And it's also a very long time since we've had an event like this in Victoria. You know, Sydney tends to get the lion's share of events and there hasn't really been this sort of fan-run event for a long time. And right. and the local club got behind the event in a really good way. We've obviously been plugging the event. 42 mm-hmm. to Doomsday, who are both Melbourne-based, have been plugging the event. So there, there really was a, a good vibe about the whole thing. Um, and that's before Katie turned up. And look, Katie was... Um, huh, Anyone who hadn't seen her before would say that she was quite manic. Uh, having seen her before back at the uh, height of her manic times, that sort of, you know, 20 years ago, I thought she was a little calmed down. She's mellowed. <laughs> She's mellowed, yes. Um, but still very, very manic. Look, incredibly high energy and incredible love for the show. Mm. And what's really interesting about Katie is... Although she openly says there's a lot of her life she can't remember and she can't do dates and, you know, struggles with names and all the rest of it sometimes, she does have a really good memory for moments and for stories. Mm. And so she tells a lot of stories. And that that also means that rather than sort of getting the Katie Manning top 10 stories. You know, you, you go and see some actors in the show and it's been a long time for them. You get it and they're sort of like, well, here's the set of anecdotes that I trot out when I do an event. Yeah. And and that's the way they handle doing these things. Katie is not like that. She's not remotely <laughs> that organised to be like that. So you do get these just completely unique and unusual stories. And as somebody who's seen Katie once, no, twice before, who's seen all the docos on the DVDs and the Blu-rays and all the rest of it, I hadn't heard most of her stories before. So that was really, really fun. Uh, She talked about still being very close friends with Richard Franklin and John Levine. And uh, look, she was very honest about John Levine's more unusual character traits. Um, (laughs) But, you know, she she talked about her love. She, She clearly still has a huge love for John Pertwee and indeed for Nicholas Courtney and 
that really came across. Um, but she also talked a bit about her time hanging out with Liza Minnelli and Judy Garland. And oh, wow. All those Hollywood people that she hung out with and the parties that she used to be invited to and the celebrities that she just used to sort of, you know, hang out with and usually accidentally offend because it's just you know, Katie being Katie. <laughs> There's a YouTube video. I think it's from a Ruby Wax show. Yes, I know the one you mean. Which yes. has got Katie Manning and Liza Minnelli hanging out. And if people want to search that out, it's just... Wow, you think if this is what they got on camera, imagine what was happening off camera. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that was really nice. Katie was on stage for over three and a half hours oh, um, wow. cumulatively across the day. So this wasn't one of those official cons where they come in at five past the hour, they get a few Q&As, then they're taken off at five minutes before the hour, and that's it, you've had your show. Mm-hmm. Um, there was plenty of time to do that. Uh, people who got photos got proper time with Katie and lots of hugs. People who got autographs with Katie got several minutes to chat to Katie. She was very happy to talk to fans. So everybody got their their money. Everybody got to experience it. And probably the most interesting point to come out of it mm. is that Katie did drop a number of hints that she has done something for the 60th. She said that, oh, there's more of me to see. And she did say, you'll see soon that I've worked with more doctors than almost anyone else. Um, so I don't know what that'll be. Is it part of the doco? Is there maybe some special celebration event that's going to be on one of the other dates? Are there past Doctors and Companions in one of the specials, a la Power of the Doctor? Is that something that's happening? Or is it a big finish event? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and a number of options, but she was really you know excited to drop these big hints that, no, no, I've done stuff with other Doctors lately. You just wait and see. <laughs> That's fabulous. Oh, this is going to be a good month, Dave. It, it really is. So, look, it was a really friendly event. A bunch of us went to the pub afterwards and stayed there for, for another three or four hours just chatting, nice. reminiscing, and, you know, talking about Doctor Who. That's excellent. That's really good to hear. Hats off to uh, Sirens of Audio for doing uh, their third big event in, in just a few months. Absolutely. And I've got an idea of what they're planning for the next one, and I'm very excited if that comes off. Ooh. I'm sure we can't give hints. No, we can't give hints, but the moment they announce it, we will share. Absolutely. So, Rob, look, that's my short topic. Uh, you said it was probably the most exciting, but let's find out what's yours. Well, Dave, this is actually pretty exciting too, because from time to time, we get to do something pleasurable through being known for doing the podcast. I remember last year with the whole Disney deal coming up, you ended up doing a couple of radio uh, spots, didn't you? I did, that's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I hope I'm not putting the cart before the horse with this one, but we've been invited to give some comments on the series to The Big Issue, the Australian edition of The Big Issue, which has a Doctor Who article in the works at present. Now, for those who don't know it, The Big Issue is a street newspaper. It's sold by homeless people or people at risk of being homeless so they can have an income and a job, and it's hopefully a stepping stone to being you know, coming back into society. And I also believe it's the world's most widely circulated street newspaper. So it's a great honour to be asked to assist with an article for this publication. And we've already done the hard yards of answering a bunch of questions. And now we're waiting to see a PDF of what quotes they've used and what the article will look like, basically. Uh, yes, it's one of those very random things that happens when you are a, a Doctor Who podcaster. And it does just go to show that 
things are starting to ramp up around the 60th. Other media outlets are starting to talk about it. Yeah, they're starting to notice. They're, they're, they're hunting down Doctor Who fans for comment. It's, it's very exciting. And Dave, I'll be very keen to grab some issues of this when it comes out. We have um, a chap who sells the big issue right outside my office building. And of course, once the issue's come and gone and it won't affect sales, I'm sure we can share what it looked like for anyone who hasn't been able to buy a copy uh, here in Australia. Absolutely. Now, one more quick topic just to mention, Rob. Uh, oh, that yes. is the, And that is that I have read another Virgin New Adventure, or reread, I should say, another Virgin New Adventure this month. I reread The Dimension Riders. As I said last episode, having enjoyed Conundrum so much, I then went and read the sequel, Head Games, but I decided I wanted to read more of the alternate history cycle. And so I've gone for The Dimension Riders, which I uh, haven't reread since it first came out in ninety. 90- Three or 94, early 94 maybe, um, and I had very wow. little memory of. It's by Daniel Blythe, and I really enjoyed this, um, mm. but what was really interesting is it's very clearly written by a fan, and as I was reading it, I was going, oh, he's taken that from Babylon 5, or he's taken that from Later Next Gen, or he's taken that from Sharda, and then I've realized it was written in early 94, so probably 93, and none of those things were out yet. So he just clearly was so in sync with sci-fi in the 90s that he's doing all these same sorts of ideas, and that's really, really cool. That's wild. That's absolutely wild. Yeah, so that that was just a really fun read. Is, Is it about to rocket to my top five NAs? No, it's not, but it was just a really enjoyable one that that probably is the most forgotten of that alternate history cycle because it doesn't bring back the Silurians or the Land of Fiction or the big spoiler bring backs for, for the you know, future brought back. It's not the big famous Kate Orman uh, left-handed hummingbird one that everybody sort of talks about as discovering this new author. It's just a sort of a very ordinary, and I mean by that not wild, sort of novel in the middle of this very big and popular uh, cycle. So yeah, I really enjoyed going back and reading that. And the cover is fantastic. It's got one of the really good covers of the new adventures. Now, I'm, I'm trying to picture it in my mind. Is there a skeleton on that cover? It's the one with the seventh Doctor looking at two skeletons playing chess. Yes, yes. that's the one. Yeah, yes, I can picture it in my mind. Yep, very cool. So I enjoyed that. Very good. Well, that's the end of the short topics. And Dave, it's time for us to talk Doctor Who Season 8 as voted for by the listeners. It is. So we put up four options, mm-hmm. and the winner, by a reasonable margin in a four-way contest, was John Pertwee's Season 8 with 37.1%. Mm-hmm. Tom Baker's Season 12 came next at 31.1%. Series 9 with Capaldi, 189 and Series 4 with Tennant, 129 So a very clear winner there. Yeah, I swear I'll get Season 12 up one day. I swear. <laughs> Look, absolutely, you absolutely will. And and I think we've sort of said, Rob, maybe we're going to make sure that the next one's a new series, aren't we? Oh, yes, yes. We've got to have some balance. We've got to have some balance, yes. So we will do a, a, a new series next time. But we're doing Season 8 today. Yeah, we are. And Dave, this rewatch of these Season 8 stories, I'm going to say up front, might be the first time I've ever watched all of these stories in order. Including on broadcast? Yes, because... Wow. When we did our Pertwee retrospective of his entire era a few years back, I don't believe I watched them all in order. I don't believe I watched them all. I don't think I watched all the the Pertwee stories at all for that episode. 
And when I think back, as you've just alluded to, to the, the Doctor Who repeats in Australia, I seldom saw the, the so-called much-repeated Pertwee era, <laughs> in quotation marks. I know everyone talks about it. I don't recall seeing a lot of it going out on the ABC. So I was watching episodes that had been dubbed for me or, or on BBC videos, that sort of thing. So I was always watching these things out of order much like how I've seen every Doctor Who episode that's available, but I've never done the so-called Great Journey watching them in order either. So this was a rare moment for me to actually watch all of this over a couple of weeks in order. A new experience, and that's rare for classic Doctor Who day for me. Oh, that's really cool. Look, I did see the repeat seasons of this. Um, A couple of them were repeated in 1985, and I would have seen them. Uh, Mm -hmm. All of them got a repeat as part of that big repeat run in 1986 that famously kicked off with The Mind Robber. Mm-hmm. There had been a number of Pertwee repeats through the late 70s and early 80s, but I, I wouldn't have seen most of them, and if I did, I wasn't, wasn't aware of it. <laughs> so, I, but, but, but I certainly do remember these going out as repeats in 1986 when I was six years old. And we dubbed a number of the episodes off the TV. So we actually had copies of these. So from the age of six, I had most of these stories or, or, or some episodes from each of these stories on VHS at home. So mm. I'm very familiar with them. Once we got into fandom and we were able to swap tapes with others, we got the rest of the stories, the episodes that we didn't have. One of my big memories of this, of course, is that Terror of the Autons, The Mind of Evil, and The Demons were all in black and white. Yes. Yes, they were. And that will become one of my points later on, particularly when we talk about The Demons. Dave, I want to ask you, based on what you've just said there, is the fact you had all these copies off the TV, the the reason for why you got into Pertwee, just because you were watching Pertwee all the time, or did you just like Pertwee? I think it's a bit of both. I, I think that people talk about your first Doctor being your favourite, and although growing up in the Colin and McCoy era, I saw a lot of Pertwee, and he, he was kind of that first real Doctor I engaged with, but, mm. but also the whole sort of man of science sort of thing was, was something that really appealed to me. I think that Pertwee's Doctor is in some ways a very nerdy sort of Doctor. And I think that a lot of Doctor Who fans who were nerdy at school and, and you know, weren't all that confident, perhaps did did like the way that he carried on. I think I think there was something about him that did resonate with me beyond him just being um, the Doctor I saw as a kid. Mm, yeah, I, I think there's also... I mean, he talks about it himself when he talks about his cape. You know, he'd put it around people. He's like the mother hen sort of thing. I think there's a, a vibe around Pertwee that he's a very safe Doctor to watch. You'll, you'll always be okay watching Pertwee, and maybe that's a nice thing when you're a young kid. He's not as manic as Tom, perhaps. I think that's exactly right. He is a very reassuring Doctor, and I know, I know that's something he went for, as you said. So it's, it's interesting... These are stories I'm very familiar with watching as a kid. And I suspect in large part because of that, they're not stories I've rushed to watch a lot as an adult. I certainly have rewatched them. I've definitely watched them all when the DVD came out. I hadn't had a chance yet to watch them when the Blu-ray came out. So this was my first proper work through the Blu-ray collection. And look, they've come out occasionally, but you know when you've seen something so often and you're so familiar you don't put it on as much because it just feels yeah. like, oh, well, I, I, I know that one. I don't need to see that one. Yeah. So this has been a really good opportunity for me to to do the big journey through them. I've, I've, I was really looking forward to doing it. Oh, good. Well, before we start talking about them individually, I'll say that going in, I knew there were stories I really like, including my favourite Pertwee story ever. And at least one story I was a bit hazy on, wondering if I'd even finished watching it the last time I attempted to watch it over the past decade. So 
I knew this was a season that wasn't all hits or all misses by any stretch. And of course, it's the debut for Roger Delgado, who's in every story. And the more I watch him, Dave, the more I wish we could go back to having a master like this. He's devious without being ridiculous. He's funny without needing to dance to Boney M uh, and so on. He's he's just great and he's so very watchable. So yeah, I was more than happy for this to have won the poll, even if it wasn't my choice. Again, season 12 will get up one day, I swear. Shall we get into the stories? Well, well, since you've raised the master, I might just echo what you've said about oh, Roger sure. Delgado's performance. I, I, I thought it was absolutely extraordinary. I know that there is a lot of sort of received fan wisdom around the place that I was, it was silly to put him in five stories. The audience would get sick of it. Let me say, when I was a kid, you didn't know what season eight was. You just had the John Pertwee era repeated. Yeah. There was no sort of, oh, this is series eight, this is series nine. So there was just a, a number of stories that had the master in it. It never occurred to me that there were five in a row with the master as a kid. It was just something that happened in the Pertwee era. The master rocked up the same way that Dr. Claw rocked up every episode of Inspector Gadget. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just how TV worked. And as an adult... Look, there's one story that maybe might have benefited from removing him, but probably not. Uh, and I'll talk about that when I get there. So, no, no, plenty of Roger is is fine. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, I, I never watched this in order anyway. So, although when I got very fanish in like 86, 87, I knew conceptually there was a season where the master was in every story, but I never watched it story to story to story anyway. So, it, it never was really something I thought about all that often. No, no, absolutely. So, look, before you even get into it, uh, big thumbs up for Roger Delgado as the master. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, the whole thing kicks off, Dave, with Terror of the Autons, written by Robert Holmes and directed by Barry Letts. And to me, this feels quintessentially classic Doctor Who, at least quintessentially Pertwee Doctor Who. Yet, it's only my second favourite story of the season. But let's park that. Look at the stats. We've got Bob Holmes writing. We've got Let's directing as well as producing. We're introducing the master. The Autons are back. We have a bunch of classic scenes that get referenced all the time in Doctor Who history. Talk about that Doctor Who documentary that's coming for the 60th. I'm sure there'll be shots of the troll doll from Terror of the Autons in that. The vibe is slightly different from the previous season, maybe in part because Joe's there, maybe because the Doctor feels more embedded in unit. I don't know. That's a bit intangible to me, but it does feel different to the previous season. It's only a four-parter. It comes out swinging. It races through the story. It terrifies the kiddies. It doesn't outstay its welcome. It's a very satisfying piece. I think it's a great season opener, Dave. It's a fantastic season opener. I went into this one, having not watched it for a very long time, thinking it wouldn't be my favourite of the season. But it's, it, as I watched it, I thought, gee, it, it could actually become my new favourite of the season because it is just excellent. Mm. The Master arrives. He's quickly in command. He's also very quickly having fun. Yes. And I think that's a really important part of the character from the start. Uh, he's menacing. He's wicked. He shrinks Gooch down and puts him in his lunchbox. <laughs> Um, you know, he kills somebody with a chair. He has a lot of fun. And, and, and you know, for example, when Feral Senior beats his hypnotism, he actually finds that quite amusing. Yeah. Uh, he's then very vicious and kills him with a troll doll. But but <laughs> but there's a there's a smile to it which I really love. I think Pertwee, Pertwee was in fine form from Spearhead, but Pertwee is now incredibly confident in the role and just sort of 
is this presence that just moves through the story as a sort of an unstoppable force. But yeah, you really feel as though this is one of those season openers where everybody's brought their a game. Barry Letts clearly wants it to succeed, which is why he's directed him himself. The stunt people are going above and beyond. There's location footage. There's great costuming. It's a really good cast. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing I would change about this story. It is excellent. Although watching it as an adult, I did realize just how vicious it is. Yeah. It really is. And it's it like, really is. We sometimes say on the show, this was kids' television, <laughs> and this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, look, absolutely. And and look, I like the idea of the master here kind of just having fun and really just here to mess around with the Doctor. Mm. There's this sense of the master going, I haven't seen my old friend the Doctor for a while. I'm just going to go and... Oh, no, I can't say what I was about to say. I'm just going to go. Start and with me- F? Yes, I'm just going to go there, go and mess with him for a bit. <laughs> and, and I think if you take the story as that, it, it all works. Even the conclusion, which some people, uh, some people are critical of, I think if you realise that the master isn't really that invested in the nested invasion, he just wants to mess with the doctor. Well, yeah. then it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned Pertwee just being like on song, just he's he's just in there. Does that tie into what I was saying, perhaps this intangible feeling that the vibe is slightly different from the, the previous season? Could it be that Pertwee is on song? I think Pertwee is even more on song than he was in season seven. I think writers have now seen Pertwee in the role and are mm. now right, they're now writing Pertwee. I think in season seven, they're writing the Doctor. In season eight, they're writing Pertwee's Doctor. And the same with the Brigadier as well. They've now seen the Brigadier. They've seen Nick Courtney. And so there is this sense that they're now writing to the strengths of characters. And that really helps. Um, Plus, there is just a really good energy about the whole thing. I'm I'm giving this one an A+. I can't find any reason to take even half a mark off it. Yeah, if we're going with letters, I'd give it an A for sure. And thank God we've got Nick Courtney out of that ridiculous beige romper suit from season seven. I never had a problem with that. But, Did you not? But but hey, we get to see them all all in their um their fierce camo gear as well, so that was cool. Yeah, very cool. Dave, do you want to take us through the next story in the season? So the Mind of Evil is one I walked in with, knowing that this was a story that. As a kid, I really didn't like. It didn't work for me at all. It wasn't frightening in the sense of, oh, this is too scary to watch and I'm scared watching it. But it was nasty in a way that was uncomfortable, I think, for a kid. You know, remembering I was watching The Mind of Evil when I was six, seven, eight, you know. So, wow. Yeah, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah. And I do remember it being a very nasty story where there was a lot of very casual and nasty death. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Doctor Who death, not that sort of TV death, but just nasty death. I went into it and I did enjoy it. I think it is a very good example of extraordinary style beating an ordinary script. The director here, Timothy Coombe, did famously go significantly over budget on this one, uh, such that I believe Barry Letts had to assure the BBC he wouldn't be hired again. Wow. Because of that budget. And and so, you know, look, credit to him for doing a really good job at the direction because it is amazing. Although if everybody could go massively over budget, you know, that makes life a bit easier as a director. Yeah, I think there were reshoots that were causing that over budget. There were reshoots as well, um, yeah. but, but there was a lot of location work there's a lot of extras there's lots of equipment and and the director does a lot of work with it and it makes it look really really good and the cast is really big the cast is really stunning so that works really really well 
Underneath all that, though, the script, I think, is average. Not bad, but average. There's a lot of coincidences, even by Doctor Who standards. The Keller machine, when you watch it, sort of looking to do an analysis as we are, to dive deep into it, I really picked up that the Keller machine just completely changes into about four different things across the course of the episode, mm. depending on what the Keller machine needs to be. You know, at one stage, it's extracting evil impulses and, and obviously does work because it's been used on 113 victims before. Then it does this thing where it scares you and, you know, if you're scared of rats, you actually get rats' claws on your face and all that sort of thing. Then mm. it's scaring the doctor, but the doctor doesn't get burned. Then it's just, you know, and, and sort of evolves and then it's just this thing that just kills you and then it's just this thing that just rocks up, does a static effect and kills you and buggers off again. So, <laughs> and, and then it's an alien slug. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's all these things and you know, then it can't work because Barnum's nearby because it's still extracting evil impulses like that. That, as a kid, like all of this made sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, it all made sense. But as an adult, you sit there and go, this script writer's cheating. Yeah. But... It is very, very well made. It's fun. It's exciting. And it does really introduce that proper sense of internationalism that the Let's Era had, that, that real sense that we are in a world, not in the UK. That ties in, though, Dave, to my main criticism, which is the peace conference stuff in this story. You know, Chin Lee, the US delegate, the dragon that appears briefly, all of that stuff. I don't think it's needed. No, it's, it's not needed. It feels like padding on top of a four-parter because, frankly, all of that aspect sort of goes nowhere. You know, it, it's sort of interesting while you're watching it, but then it just sort of peters out. You know, the conference could be just something we hear about. It's just something happening in London and it becomes the target for this missile. We don't need to see it or the people involved, do we? Uh, I disagree. I think that okay. it, does, it does add a dimension and I suspect... If the peace conference wasn't in there, we might be saying that it lacked a little bit of depth because it was just all about this slug in a box. Hmm. So I think that the whole Thunderbolt and delegates and, and meeting the Chinese delegate and killing or attempting to kill the US delegate, that, that actually I think does add this sense that, particularly for the master, I think it adds a sense of him being a big villain who's playing on an international level rather than just a mad scientist who's messing around with a slug. Yeah. Oh, look, and it is fun to see Roger get in the back of that big car with a chauffeur. and <laughs> Yes. He's got a big cigar and all of that. Yeah, that's fun. It's just that, you know, that US delegate, that character sort of goes nowhere. Chin Lee doesn't really go anywhere. But one thing I did want to say about this as well is this is a noisy story, Dave. Whether it's the prison riots or it's the sound that the Keller machine makes or just the crazy electronic score, I feel like my ears have been clobbered after watching this one. It's almost got to the point where I don't fancy watching it because of how noisy it is. Is that strange? It's not, and it's not a point I'd written down, but now you say it, it's one I absolutely agree with. And, and thinking back to being a kid, I do wonder if part of what put me off was a combination of the black and white and a lot of noise. And remembering these black and white copies were not great copies, even what was broadcast. Mm. And so the sound, that noise would have been even more blurry and more uh, static. Yeah, it's it's a real oral assault. It, it's, it's, it's incredible in this story, actually. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Mm. Uh, so look, Rob, um, very good. I think production better than script. I'm giving it a B. And yeah, it's a B from me too. Oh, interesting.
<laughs> Shall we move on to the claws of Axos? Yes, take it away, Rob. All right. This is an interesting story, Dave, because I don't think the idea behind it is bad. And there's some location filming, which always lifts a story, absolutely always lifts a story. And I like the idea behind some of the characters. We've got a stuffy man from the ministry type. We've got an American running around. It feels like there's a lot of good ingredients here, but it doesn't quite work for me. Said American is really weirdly acted. Some of the sets are bizarre looking. And the plot for the man from the ministry, Chin isn't done as well as it could be. Indeed, why he even keeps working after he's been fired halfway through the story is beyond me. Thankfully, though, it's only four parts. I reckon if this was a six-parter in this style, it would be classed as a real stinker. But I think it squeaks through in four parts as okay, but not quite right. It's just a bit off target for me, this one, Dave. I walked into the Claws of Axos with the view that it was the weak link of the season. Okay. And I had a bit of a mixed reaction to it. I've got a couple of negatives and, a couple, and, and one, maybe two big positives. There are two big problems with it, and you alluded to one of them. The first is that there's a lot of ideas that are thrown and never really go anywhere. As you said, Bill Filer comes in. Oh, this really interesting character. Oh, there's a unit agent from, from America. That's great. Mm. What does he actually do? Nothing. Yeah. Chin comes in. He's doing things that no public servant or no civil servant in the UK would ever really have the power to do. He's kind of there just to be a bit of a foil. He, he never feels like a real character. And then suddenly he's just back in part four because I guess the actor had a contract waving around a, a piece of chicken. And, and like, that's not satire. That's just absurdity. Yeah. Um, you know, so that sort of thing really annoys me. Lots of these ideas kind of come and they go. So that's a problem with the script. It's got too many ideas that don't go anywhere. The other big problem that really doesn't work is that when you think about a Doctor Who story, particularly a unit story in the Pearl era, there are really two types of ways your story can go. The first is that no one has a clue what's going on. The audience doesn't know, the Doctor doesn't know, Unit doesn't know, and across the course of the story, you discover the plot with the Doctor. Yes. The other one is that the Doctor very quickly works out what's going on, but we don't know, Unit doesn't know, Joe doesn't know, and the Doctor leads us through the story. Yeah. In this occasion, after about 10 minutes, the Doctor's worked out that the axons are baddies, it's very clearly telegraphed to the audience that the Doctor's worked out that the Axons are baddies. So we spend the next three episodes going, well, we know they're baddies. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what are we standing around here for? That sort of structure really doesn't work. That said, I got to the end of part three. I stopped for the night. I went to work and came home the next day and watched episode four. Episode four is fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's where all of these problems just dis- disappear and we just have a really exciting conclusion to the story. So I, I did lift it a bit because of just how fun and exciting episode four was. Interesting, interesting. I've got to ask you, though, because obviously you did the Goodies Pirate podcast and, and Dave, there is a moment where an axon zaps a guy and he explodes and it looks like something from the Goodies. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the bit I'm talking about? I know exactly the bit you're talking about, where the explosion isn't quite right. As in the yes. cut between the, the guy running the explosion isn't quite right. Yes. I know, it's like an outcut from the goodies. It's hilarious. There is, there's those couple of shots with, um, I think it's Mike Yates in the Jeep where they've got the CSO screen behind him and haven't CSO'd anything onto it. Yes. 
Um, and, and and that's the thing. There there are just a number of there are a number of really cool things. I think the eye of Axos looks really cool. The yeah. model of Axos looks really cool. The sets of Axos, yeah, don't quite work. But look, we forgive them. And and again, this, this is us watching them on large flat screen high definition TV. So you know, yeah. forgive yeah. them a bit there. Um, you know, there, there's some really weird moments. The the bit where the Doctor's experimenting with a piece of axonite, which then turns into a foam machine, and then Windsor comes along and he melts, and then suddenly there's an axon Duna walking mm. around. Mm. Now, is that meant to be that the Windsor who tries to stop the Doctor was an axon duplicate who then gets zapped and turns back into axonite? Or did Windsor dissolve and that piece of... and that axon Duna came from the machine like that that was the thing that i was experimenting on or did it come out of somewhere like i just i'm not quite sure what was going on there it's very weirdly cut that's that's a good point actually maybe i should pull the target novel out and have a look yeah yeah look, it might explain maybe, it maybe you should i said earlier on that there's one story that i thought maybe could lose the master look if we had to take the master out of one story i think it would be this one. Oh, for um, sure he doesn't add all that much to the plot but I wouldn't take him out because the scenes we get of him, particularly his interactions with the Brigadier, his interactions with the Doctor, are glorious. Yeah, he's he's on song. Well, he's on song across the whole season, frankly. Absolutely. And, and this is probably the first time we really get to see him interact with our characters in that sort of extended way. So that's really, really good. Look, I think the story has got flaws. Structurally, it's all over the place. There are some quite naff special effects, even for Doctor Who standards. But episode four was great. Pertwee's great. Uh, C plus for me. C for me. I'm being just a little more generous than you across the board here today, I think. Well, you you are a former Pertwee acolyte, so maybe that's it. <laughs> maybe that is it. And look, on that note, I'm going to talk about what going in I thought of as my favourite of the season, and that is Colony in Space. Oh, yes. Now, I spoke before about The Mind of Evil being a case of great style over a week script. Watching Colony in Space now, I thought this is easily the best script of the season. It's a Malcolm Holt script. You know Malcolm Holt's my favourite writer for Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. But I did feel that the production of this does let the script down a couple of times, and sometimes in a really important way way now the script is a great story it's got really interesting themes that are very neatly and very cleverly woven through the episode it's got that Malcolm Hulk characterization where nobody's just a goodie or a baddie everybody's got a bit of a different sort of tone so you get Cordwell who's definitely got some baddie about him you know there there are times where it's like he's like no we should do the good thing remember the money you know what let's just go with it um (laughs) you know he's got those moments you then get Captain Dent who isn't necessarily vicious he's just ruthless and he just wants to do a good job and look i'm i'm sure dent does believe that getting raw materials back to earth and making sure more people have homes is a good and right right thing to do and then you get morgan who's just an asshole um Mm. so you know you get all that and even with the colonist you get someone like ash who's look he's a little bit selfish a little bit egotistical but he's clearly a good man then you got somebody like Winton, who is a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more reckless, a little bit more ruthless, and, and so on and so forth. So there's a real scale of black and white in the characters that I really love. Um, the way that the primitives are handled is really good. The, the script is fantastic. It is very beige. 
The production's very beige. The quarry's very beige. The clothing's very beige. The equipment's very beige. That doesn't help too much. And occasionally it just sort of looks very beige in 70s, which doesn't help the energy of the story. But new director, Michael E. Bryant, is clearly trying to do a few things as well. The fight scenes are epically good. The mm-hmm. model works really good. And you can see this new director trying to do more than just, I'll just point it at the model. He's like, I'm going to move the camera around the model. I'm going to do some stuff with the model. And, and the fight scenes are really well done. So he's clearly trying to do new and innovative things. And, and Michael Lee Bryant will go on to direct some fantastic Doctor Who and Blake Seven. Mm-hmm. So you can see the genesis of that there. I, I've spoken a lot about this, Rob, because I, I have a lot of time for <laughs> and I have a lot to say. I will pause, though, and um, breathe and let you talk about yes. Colony in Space. Take a breath, Dave. Take a breath. I'm glad you mentioned the beigeness of this because I find this one a bit dull. And surprisingly for me talking about a dull Pertwee episode or story, I'm not going to pin it down to the length. While I don't think this is the most interesting place in the universe for the Doctor to end up on on his first big adventure away from the Earth after being exiled, I think the episodes are paced pretty well. And that comes down to the script that you've been praising. And it does get revitalized when the master turns up later on. So that's all fine. And yeah. all the automatic gunfire and quarries, well, that's a bit case of Androzani, isn't it? You know, <laughs> 15 years ahead of its time yeah. or, or so. But overall, it still feels dull to me. That's the most honest way I can describe this one. It, I, I know you've mentioned some of the nuance of some of the characters and, you know, what it's trying to suggest, the allegory and all of that sort of stuff. But... To me, it's often just lots of going back and forth between the colonists' base and the miners' base. That's all it is. And the primitives, they they have this technologically superior past. I used to confuse that with Death to the Daleks when I was young, Dave. (laughs) It's a very similar sort of uh, thing going on there. Yeah, it doesn't grab me as much as it grabs you, but I can see what you're saying about the script. And again, I, I think it fills out its episodes, which is one of my regular criticisms of the Pertwee era. So I think it, it is well written, but maybe it is just that beigeness creeping in and it's just beige and going from base to base, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. I, I don't like this one as much as you, clearly. Yeah, look, look, that is a very reasonable criticism and I can see why people, including yourself, would feel that way. I do agree it fills its length quite well. I think there's enough ideas and enough settings in there. I think the excitement of it being the third Doctor and Joe's first journey away from Earth, uh, which is extraordinary when you think about it. They're, what, seven, eight stories into their run now? Yeah. Eight stories into their run. This is the first time they, they leave Earth. I think that does give it a bit of momentum. As you say, the Master turns up at exactly the right time to give it some momentum, which, which is really cool. I also think this is a really important turning point for the Doctor and the Master. We, we've spoken about how in Terror of the Autons, the Master's just kind of messing with the Doctor. In The Mind of Evil, it's sort of a bit like that as well. It's a bit like, well, you got one up on me, I'm going to get one up on you this time, and I'm going to mess with your peace conference. <laughs> and he's all just mm. sort of having fun, and there's banter between them. The Claws of Axos, he doesn't really care. He's just sort of like gets captured by Axos, and he says, hey, don't eat me. Go over there and eat the big planet. There's lots of stuff there. <laughs> yeah. And then he just wants to go. He just wants to leave, and, and it's all just sort of having fun. And he's having fun hanging yeah. with the Doctor. You really get that sense. Yeah. Until you get to the colony in space, and in the end you have that really pivotal scene where the Master offers the Doctor a share in the universe. Yeah. And, and, and the Doctor for a moment does have that moment of, well, 
you know, I could bring good to the universe if I controlled it. You know, I, I could stop wars and I could bring peace and that would be a good thing. And he very quickly realizes rightly that that power would corrupt. There's no such thing as, you yeah. know, all, all that sort of thing. But I get a real sense that that's the point where the master realizes the doctor's not his friend. And I think that's why up until this story, the doctor's messing with him. After this story, there's a change in dynamic and they do become much more enemies in the, in the real sense of the word. Yeah, the Doctor's not for turning, Dave. No, he isn't. But look, I enjoyed this story a lot. And I'm going to give it an A, which on the one hand I'm very pleased about because I do love it and I think it deserves a high mark. But I did surprise myself that it is half a mark below the Terror of the Autons. It, it actually perhaps wasn't my favourite of the story on rewatch, if only by a margin and if only, you know, the, 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 the difference might be a few drab costumes, but... It was enough to lower it just below terror. Interesting. I'm going C plus. Really? Yeah. 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 Okay. No, that's fair. <laughs> I've definitely been more generous on that one. You have. You have. But Dave, we now get to the demons. And I have such a long connection to this story. It was the first Doctor Who anyone ever copied onto VHS for me. This was circa 1987. Mark Douglas is the culprit. Hello, Mark, if you're listening. And it was from the black and white version on Aussie TV in May of 1986 that you were talking about earlier in the show. And because it was that black and white version, and I said I'd talk about this earlier on, it was all the spookier for a 12-year-old like me. Yes. Scenes where you get that wind sound effect and the road sign spins around in an almost comical fashion that's so much better in black and white i've come to that conclusion having watched it in color several times now it's like oh this is much scarier in black and white that first episode is just so quotable for me you know as for the story itself this is my favorite of the season hands down it's the doctor and joe unit is out in the field it's the master. It's a quiet English village. It's the occult. There's a white witch. All of that's before we get to the bloody alien. You know, I, I mean, this is just great. There's so much in here and it really lasts the five episodes. So another longer Pertwee story that I think absolutely justifies its length. Oh, Dave, the demons. My favorite, favorite Pertwee story. Hands down. I really like it as well. Okay. I really enjoyed going back to watch it this time. I agree with you that the black and white really added something particularly to this story. I think it did work really, really well in black and white. But but even now, when I see that vivid crimson red of the master's robes, that's still like a, wow, look at that, because I still think of them as being grey. So, you know, those little things do stand out for me. Oh, some of those scenes on Blu-ray where he's in the red robe, it looked so crisp and amazing. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think that this story has a lot to commend it. Uh, famously, it's the one where they took two weeks of location f- filming to go down and really put in the effort, and that clearly is demonstrated. The cast is clearly really giving their all into it. I think Azal is a really amazing creation and a really good villain. I, I love the way that we sort of work through the story. The village setting is obviously iconic, and I have been to Oldbourne, so I, I can say I've done the, the, the pilgrimage down to Devil's End. I don't think there's anything here to really fault. Maybe it's a little flabby in a couple of places. Maybe it's a little silly in a couple of places, but that's all part of it. And it builds over five episodes to such an amazing conclusion. I, I think 
I think that cliffhanger at the end of part four where you finally see Azal is one of those really effective monster reveal cliffhangers. Mm. It's it's just a great adventure, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that moment you reference, I think it's really... Because obviously they're using some dodgy 70s effects. But the way the camera turns around Azal's legs... Yes. Is, ...is a really sort of advanced camera move for this era, Dave, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of really good snapping between angles as well, particularly down in the cavern. There's there's lots of just snap to someone's face, snap to Bok's face, snap to the master. It, it's, it's actually done in a really clever way have we mentioned that christopher barry is behind this we should probably mention that christopher barry is behind (laughs) it and it's probably his best work on the series yeah and and look one of the reasons why we have the black and white episodes is this is one that christopher barry did say to the archives look i want this on my show reel could you please put it aside for me and and so you know justifiably so Mm. rob the ending gets a certain amount of flack from fans so i'm going to address that head on okay people say that the ending's a bit of a cheat or that's too easy but I've never found it so, and given that the entire premise of the story is this idea that black magic is actually just the mental force, the mental power of people being projected and used, and that the demon is controlled by and uses the the thoughts and the the mental energy of the people doing the chants and you know doing all this stuff, that that's the energy that controls and summons the demon. The idea that Joe inserting her positive wanting to sacrifice herself energy in there, throws that all out of whack and has a really bad effect on Azal, to me, made absolute sense. Yeah, I've never had a problem with it. And that could be, could be, Dave, that I read The Demons as a Target novel when I was a kid and I saw this when I was a kid. And I think anything you read as a kid or see as a kid and the storyline makes sense to you, you can sort of carry that through your life and even when you're a lot older you still sort of have this this kernel at the back of your mind that yeah yeah that makes sense that makes perfect sense whereas someone who comes to it in 2023 as a 30 year old or a 40 year old or a 50 year old whatever it might be they'll be an adult and they'll have different experiences and they'll just see it completely differently perhaps and neither is right neither is wrong am i making sense yeah, look, it absolutely makes sense. And also the way it does the theme of the story works here far more than it does in something like The Claws of Axos. Claws of Axos is sort of very all over the place in terms of what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say. And, you know, it's pro-internationalism until it's convenient not to be and all, all that sort of thing. Whereas The Demons, right from the start of episode one, you get a feeling of what this story is about, what it's trying to say. It's it's pushing back against superstition and legend and talking about science, Miss Grant. And, you know, it's, it's got that mm. sort of real Pertwee thing going. So it does that really well. And this is probably a good chance to talk about some of the other characters because Mike Yates and Sergeant Benton really come into the fore here. We've seen them develop and grow over season eight. Yes, Benton was in a couple of other stories. Um, you know, he got turned into a werewolf in the Inferno and he gets a couple of lines in Ambassadors and the Invasion. But but this is really the season we see Sergeant Benton properly and Mike Yates is introduced. And they, they are interesting and distinct characters. They do have different roles. They do work. They they are very good at just turning up when the plot needs them and, and not being there when the plot doesn't need them. And in The Demons, we really see 
that come to the fore is they are now effectively companions in the eyes of the viewer and in the way that we're worried about them and the way that they are protagonists in the story. They, they fill companion roles. Definitely. And I'm, I'm just thinking back to The Mind of Evil where it's believed that Mike Yates could be killed uh, and Benton should really be in hospital and he sort of gets himself out and he wants to lead the assault, I, I think, in tribute to Yates who he, who, who he believes could be dead at that point. Yeah. That's a really nice character moment that some might gloss over when they're watching the episode, but I always sort of pick up on that. I think, ah, oh, yeah, I see that. Yeah, I think they're fabulous together. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to commend them, and they add a lot to this story, and that's why I have to give out another A. Well, Dave, having just said it, it's so fabulous and it's my favourite Pertwee story, I'd be a very weird dude if I wasn't giving it an A, and indeed I'm going to give it an A+. Fantastic. So, look, we've both given out an A+. I've given out a couple of A's. Our lowest mark was a C+. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty positive. Thoughts on the season overall, Rob? Well, I think the simple way to look at this season is that I at least think three of the five stories are genuinely very good. So, on, on pure maths alone, it's more good than bad. And it's not like Axos or Colony are unwatchable trash by any means. You know, for me, Axos just doesn't come together quite enough. And Colony is a bit meh. And as if you said, beige. This isn't a season where there's some iffy stuff and some outright dogs with fleas. This is all right or better across the board for me. And when you look at the names, Holmes, Letts, Houghton, Baker and Martin, Hulk... Bryant, Sloman, Barry. This is nuts, Dave. This is like a who's who, yeah. if that's not too on the nose a pun to make. No wonder this season ended up working out just fine. And it sets the tone for the rest of the Pertwee era. After that first season of four really long stories, we get into a groove here that does continue through seasons 9, 10, and 11. I think that's a really good summary of it. I think it's four out of five brilliant stories and one that, like, I don't hate, but just doesn't quite come together, as you say. I think this is just such a watchable season, but also such an important season. It really struck me watching it that perhaps for the first time in the show's history, this actually feels like a season that's been designed and structured. There are there are other seasons that have a really good opener that's, that's clearly designed to be the season opener. There are others that have a really good climax that's clearly designed to be that, but I can't think of one that has both. And it's really clear that Barry Letts and Terence Dix have sat down here and gone, right, we want the big introduction of the new villain to open this series. We're then going to work through and have a big climax where the villain gets his comeuppance at the end of it and and see an arc through him and the way the Doctor reacts with him. You can really see that built into the season. Uh, And so it works really, really well. Plus, it's also the season that really gives us archetypal Doctor Who in terms of the Doctor and Joe Grant because Joe and that relationship with the Doctor really does set the standard for Doctor Who up until now. Mm, occasionally yeah. they play with the formula occasionally they throw something in but but the idea of the doctor and one female companion is really cemented here yes Liz was there before look, I love Liz Shaw but she's not the archetypal companion whereas Katie Manning and we haven't spoken enough about her in our chat Katie Manning delivers every single story she is competent enough 
that we believe in her and we admire her, but flawed enough or foolish enough that she can at least get some plot going and get some drama going, which is a, a really important balance. I think that not all companions get that balance, or not all, not all writers of companions get that balance. The, the competence, as well as a little bit of foolhardiness, so that the adventure can continue, because the Doctor needs someone to rescue. And, yeah. you know, somebody needs to wander off and get a whole new plot strand. So, you know, that's just so good. And Katie Manning really does deliver. Uh, uh, I made a point on Twitter during the week, having seen Katie Manning, when I just mm. thought the two classic companions that are brought back to New Who are Liz Sladen and Joe Grant. They're, they're the ones that RTT brings back while he's the showrunner, one in Doctor Who, one in the Sarah Jane Adventures. And they're both seen as being iconic companions, rightfully so. And I just thought, Let's and Dick's created both of them. Yeah. How's that for a record? And then I thought, and they created the fourth Doctor and cast Tom Baker. <laughs> Gee, you wouldn't mind that try, you know that that triple on your record, would you? Yeah, it's it's pretty good stuff. It is. So look, I, look, I could keep talking effusively about this. This is this is my childhood, but it's a childhood that holds up so well as an adult. I, I think this is fantastic. Yeah, I agree with you, Dave. I love seeing it on the Blu-rays, uh, particularly the colorized episodes, which were colorized once for DVD but have been colorized and I use colorized in quotation marks. You know, it's that whole process where they, they turn the black and white into color. They look even better on the Blu-rays. They've had to slightly crop the screens. I know that's part of the process uh, as well with this newer method they're using, but it's, it's so very clever how they do it. And I'm so glad they were able to do it and we don't have to watch them in black and white, even though the demons does look good in black and white. Terror of the Autons look spectacular. And I, and I remember the black and white copy being, a very ordinary black and white copy and it always seemed just a little bit fuzzy you know just a little bit soft and and watching this crisp color it it's extraordinary and that's a story you need to see in color oh it, it adds a whole new dimension to it uh, mind of evil i kind of didn't notice it was in color it's <laughs> it's it's a very sort of and, and deliberately so it's a very sort of dark grim set of settings so so mm-hmm. i didn't sort of notice it whereas terror of the audience is in bloody color and yeah. and the demons works very well in moving between dark and stormy nights and then the christmas of the master's robes or as or whatever so yeah look we could keep going <laughs> We I could, could do this all day. We could, but we need to wrap up, Dave. We do need to wrap up. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Uh, and if you haven't gone back and watched season eight for a while, do. Yes, please do. All right, Dave. So we both have a letter to read here. I'll go first. I've got one from Charlie Proctor. Charlie has written in to say, Dear Robin, Dave. I've been meaning to write for some time. I thoroughly enjoy the show. It makes for delightful company on long train journeys across the UK. As a new Who baby who was five when the series came back, it is fascinating to hear about the fandom from fans who experienced the 80s as new and endured the wilderness years. Additionally, your podcast gives some interesting context to that exotic place they call Australia. <laughs> your opinions are well-founded and diligently argued. It is refreshing to hear William Hartnell given so much airtime beyond that grumpy old bloke who started it. I'm afraid I cannot agree with the distaste for Amy Pond, however, as, like many of my school friends, she was my first crush. I'll finish with a small anecdote. I was recently at Lincoln's Inn in London and was told not to enter a road due to filming. 
In the far distance, I saw a police box surrounded by actors. I was with some austere lawyers and so had to massively and quite unsuccessfully restrain my excitement. I snapped a quick photo and sent it to some filming location Twitter accounts. I have never been involved in Doctor Who on Twitter before and was astounded by the immediate interest my crap photo received. (laughs) As I suspected, it turned out to be a police box prop from a period drama piece, but the debates that raged about what type of TARDIS it could be were equally exciting and terrifying. I think I might stay away from Doctor Who on Twitter, but I enjoyed my brief moment in the limelight. Thanks for reading. All the best from Charlie. Thank you very much, Charlie. That's a really lovely email to hear. Look, if I've uh, given some more airtime to William Hartnell, look, frankly, my job here is done. And uh, sorry about the uh, Amy Pond dislike. Uh, that's a very good excuse for liking her, so fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, Doctor Who on Twitter, yes, you're, you're probably very wise to stay away from it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'll shut up now. Uh, I've got one here from Neela's from northern ireland oh, I, yes. won't, I won't try and do my belfast accent again okay <laughs> oi oi fellas how's it going i'm sure you've been buzzing for the 60th just like the rest of us just on the topic of that so because david Tennant is returning i've recently been watching some of his previous stories i've said it before i'll say it again series three is the best of new who in my opinion of course honestly i cannot get enough of it There's just so much to love about it. Series 1 and 2 are good, but I feel that Series 3 just puts Doctor Who up into the stratosphere. It just goes to another level. It's stacked with belters like Human Nature, Family of Blood and Blink. It has the Master's Reveal and Regeneration and the Return of Captain Jack amongst many other things. What's not to love about it? Even lesser stories for me are actually really enjoyable. Daleks in Manhattan, Evolution of the Daleks, is often panned, and I can appreciate why, but I find it fun. Smith and Jones is a strong opener, and I'm a big fan of the Shakespeare Code and the Lazarus Experiment, whilst Gridlock is super too. I just feel, as a series, it's firing on all cylinders, and I haven't even mentioned the music yet. The theme at the end of Gridlock and the Family of Blood is legitimately outstanding. How can it not get you right in the fields when the Doctor and Martha are present at the Remembrance Service? And the same applies to the theme introduced in The Runaway Bride, but appears heavily in The Lazarus Experiment as Martha and the Doctor depart, plus in Last of the Time Lords and a lot of Series 4-2. How those two themes did not make the official soundtrack is criminal, but there are so many brilliant scores throughout the series. It's just an outstanding series that brings back so many happy memories. I just turned 19 at the time. David Tennant is on fire as the Doctor, and I love the three-part finale, as well as both Derek Jacobi and John Sim superb as the Master. The one drawback is the constant reference to Rose. As for me, it is a blemish on the Doctor's character, and already it's quite clear there's going to be even more references to it in the upcoming specials. That's the one RTD criticism for me. It's the constant push of Rose as the super companion, when for me, there are so many better companions than her. In Series 2, she is a melter, and Series 4, she is plain unbearable. Martha is a far better character and companion, in my opinion, and she doesn't get the credit she deserves. Freema Agamon is often forgotten about, and that's a shame, as she's brilliant. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. Hands up if you think the Doctor Who show should review Series 3. Raises both hands. 
<laughs> but here, not long until the 60th now. Really looking forward to it and your upcoming shows. I know you've got a stacked schedule, but it's great for us listeners. Talk soon, gents. Thanks. Neelers, who's at Neelers C, Carrick Fergus in Northern Ireland. Wow, that's some email. And I've got so many thoughts on it. The first is he mentions turning 19 at the time of season three going out and in our previous email from charlie charlie was like i was five when new who started your age as a doctor who fan becomes so important in relation to when you see things experience them for the first time whatever and i i I just that just stood out to me first dave the way both of them referenced their age in those emails and and how cool that we've got fans who are significantly younger than us and are joining the journey that's great yeah, yeah, absolutely. In in terms of Series 3, yeah, there are some Belter stories in there and it would be fun to review. Maybe it can be one of the uh, New Who series we put up for voting from the listeners. I was just thinking the same thing. I think we might have to nominate it, yes. Yeah, it might have to go in there and see what the listeners think. Uh, that's the fair way to do it. Because, yes, some of these stories you mentioned, like, oh, yeah, that's in that series. Oh, that's in that series. Oh, is that in that series? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a very worthy series. There there are some interesting, and I'm saying interesting in quotation marks, stories like that Daleks uh, two-parter and so on, which might be interesting to get our teeth into. But maybe I'm putting the cart ahead of the horse. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to do series three, Dave. Yeah, I, I would be as well. I think we'll certainly nominate it and see what else we nominate and what the listeners vote for. I don't think series three is the best series. I, I personally enjoy series one and series 10 more. But I will say, I think the best run of episodes that New Who did is in series three. That run of Human Nature, Family of Blood, Blink, Utopia, um, and arguably Sound of Drums as well. I think that's just a really extraordinarily good block of episodes and whilst there's some stuff I don't I don't quite enjoy much in in the first half of the series I think that that block of episodes almost does push it to be the best series it, it is probably it's probably number three for me yeah yeah it's, it's Doctor Who in its imperial phase you think of all the other stuff that was happening around the time from the books in the stores to the action figures in the stores to kids just talking about Doctor Who in a way that kids never talked about Doctor Who, Dave. Torchwood was launching, Sarah yeah. Adventures was around the corner. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And, and look, um, I will also just quickly echo uh, Neela's love for Martha. She was my favourite new Who companion until Bill came along and just pipped her. Yeah, she is very good. She's very good. All right, we always talk about what we're watching towards the end of an episode. Dave, it's been a real hodgepodge for me this past month. It's it's funny. I always manage to forget half the stuff I've watched, but here we go. Well, I'll give it a crack. I've watched Confess Fletch. This is the reboot of the Fletch movies that starred Chevy Chase back in the 80s, but it's got John Hamm as Fletch. It was okay. It actually felt a bit 80s in some ways. Pleasant enough, uh, I've got to say. I've been watching Gen V, which is the spin-off from The Boys on Prime Video. It's rude, it's crude, but it's very interesting and very watchable. I like it very much. I've watched the adaptations by Wes Anderson of some Roald Dahl short stories. They use the wonderful story of Henry Sugar to sell the idea when it's being promoted out there. But there are actually several short stories that they've done, which are, are all really great to watch, including The Swan, which is just 
horrific in so many ways. I blazed through Only Murders in the Building Series 3, which was great, but I'm wondering if it's starting to lose a little bit of steam. And Elite Season 7 has watched, so I'm contractually obligated to watch it, even though only the first season of Elite was actually any good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's what I'm up to, Dave. What about you? Uh, look, not nearly as much. I've had a very busy month, and frankly, just fitting in Season 8 has actually been a bit of a... Not, not, not a chore, but it did require me to actually schedule some time to watch it. I did watch the Henry Sugar adaption. I haven't seen the others, but I really, really enjoyed it. And as somebody who doesn't usually get a lot out of Wes Anderson and doesn't usually get a lot out of Benedict Cumberbatch. That's a very big endorsement from me. Uh, and as somebody who, you know, has a bit of a problem with Roald Dahl as a massive self-confessed anti-Semite, right. um, you know, I'll look upon past all of that because it was very, very good. I'm keen to watch the others. Uh, but I have been watching Loki Series 2 as it drops. In fact, when we finish recording, I'm going to go and watch Episode 3. Uh, so that's where I've been. Uh, hopefully things are getting a bit quieter for me over the next couple of months and I'll start to watch a bit more. But hey, having nothing to do but watch Doctor Who Series 8 is not a bad thing. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty damn good. <laughs> Yes. Shall yes. we talk about next time, Dave? Yes. So when we put together our show notes, as you alluded to at the start, Rob, we were sort of leaving November open because if we were doing three hot takes in November when we might sort of you know wrap up the season in our standard episode, or if, if not, as is the case, we'd have to do something else. So we discovered this morning that we could lock in our November episode because we are doing the hot takes into December. Uh, and we thought, look, it's the 60th anniversary, so we're going to do something a little bit special. Look, two things a little bit special. We are going to drop our November episode on the 23rd of November, mm -hmm. which clears that Sunday for us to drop our hot take on the Star Beast. And Rob, we're going to just have a chat about being Doctor Who fans. Yeah, yeah, we're going to wax lyrical about Doctor Who and being a fan of Doctor Who. It seems like a good time to do it, Dave. It, it just feels right. It does. So, look, we're going to talk about some fond memories as fans, the different ways we've watched the show, maybe some of our favourites. We're not quite sure where we're going to take this, but I think it's going to be a fairly free-flowing discussion just about our love for the show that on that day we'll be celebrating 60 years. And listeners, if you want to write to us or just tweet us a sentence or two about your favourite moment as a fan or your favourite thing about being a fan, we'd love to read those out as well. Yeah, that'd be really lovely. So, it's a month to the anniversary. It's a month. Gosh, isn't that exciting? Yeah, really looking forward to this month ahead, Dave. It's going to be great. Before we know it, we'll be doing our hot takes. We'll be into Christmas. It's all happening. And we've got our usual list makers coming every month. We've got a December episode to come, and I'm looking forward to that one. I know what it is, and you know what it is, but mm -hmm, I'm not gonna, mm -hmm, we won't mm -hmm. tell them until next month. <laughs> um, look, look, we, we've, we've been very excitable this episode because I think the 60th is upon us. We've watched a really good season of Doctor Who. I hope that you're feeling excited too, listeners, but uh, we'll be back with some anniversary specialness next month. And until then, I've been Dave. I've been Rob, and I think Doctor Who is bloody great. Here, here. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net <laughs>